Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with The Fall Guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Three, two, one. But I've worked it out. I love to listen to your podcast. Whenever you say something, other people react to it. Taking my breath away, Aaron. Fern Lundquist joins me. Hall of Famer Jim Calhoun. NASCAR icon Dale Earnhardt Jr. Kirk Herbstreet is on the phone. Welcome in, everybody. Episode 560 of the podcast. It is Speak America, the Air Tour Sports Podcast. It is Monday, April 4th. 2022. I hope everybody's doing well. I hope everybody is having a great day, and I know you are because Coach K is done. That is right. You guys and girls know what this show is going to be about. A lot of reaction to the instant classic Duke, Carolina. Carolina ends. Ends Coach Carolina wins. Ends Coach K's career. We're going to have you covered from all bases. We'll talk a little bit about the game itself. What's going on at Duke? What, what you know? Coach K's out. What's next at Duke? What does this mean for Duke? And of course, we'll talk a little bit about Carolina. Carolina fans were all up in my mentions on Saturday night, deservedly so. I was very critical of Hubert Davis. This guy, I have done a complete 180 on, 360 on, if you will, uh, after spending a little time around him at the Final Four. We'll talk a little bit about that. And then we'll wrap the show. We got to preview Monday's championship game. Listen, I'm not going to lie. This is probably not the episode to come to if you're looking for Villanova, Kansas content, okay? We got a lot of Duke Carolina at the top. We got a lot of, uh, you know, in-depth on that. And then we will get into the title game. So busy show, fun show. We got to get this out. Championship game tonight. With that said, let's get to the topic of the day. And I will tell you this. This is episode 516 of the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. I don't think there has ever been an easier topic of the day to figure out what we're going to talk about other than what happened in New Orleans on Saturday night, Duke versus Carolina, the Coach K retirement tour. We assume it's going to end Monday night with him cutting down the nets. Instead, Caleb Love, Armando Baycott, Hubert Davis, my boy. They had some different plans for Duke Final score, Carolina 81, Duke 77 in what was just an instant classic. And so look, we're going to get to every little detail from this game and then we're going to get into the big picture stuff with Duke and Carolina. But my first thought, when I think about this game, when I think about the instant reaction to this game, my first thought is pretty straightforward. How lucky are we as guys and girls, as fans of college basketball, as fans of sports that we got what we got on Saturday night. And I know everybody didn't want Duke Carolina. I understand if you're an Arkansas fan, you were trying to beat Duke to get to the Final Four. 
I understand if you're a Kentucky fan, an Arizona fan, a UConn fan, a whoever Tennessee fan, UCLA, you're disappointed that your team wasn't there. But once we got Duke Carolina last Sunday after Carolina takes care of St. Peter's, I think we were all secretly kind of excited to see what it would look like on the biggest stage in college basketball. And boy, oh boy, oh boy, did it deliver. First of all, the crowd was amazing. I had to fly back from New Orleans on Saturday, but I can tell you Friday night in the lead up to the game, Bourbon Street was absolutely insane. Absolutely packed, wall-to-wall, Carolina fans, Duke fans, Kansas and Villanova as well. But I would say overwhelmingly it was so many Carolina fans, so many Duke fans on Bourbon Street. And then once the game started, that felt like it was played at the Dean Dome or Cameron Indoor. It had the intensity of Duke Carolina. It had the level of play that we would hope for from Duke Carolina. And so to me, more than anything, more than making fun of Coach K, more than praising Hubert Davis, throwing rose petals at his feet, what I can't stop taking away from that game was that it was everything we could have ever wanted from Duke Carolina on that stage. So rarely in life do we get a story this big, a matchup this important, And then the participants deliver with literally everything that we could have possibly asked for. The level of play was through the roof. I thought the coaching and game planning specifically from Carolina was incredible. You go down the list, it has great shot making. It has some of the sport's best players. Now that's not a discredit to guys on other teams. But when we think Duke Carolina, we expect the best of the best And we absolutely got it. And then from there, on top of all of that, the drama of the game. Duke goes up. Carolina makes its run in the first half. Then into the second half, Carolina takes this big lead. Duke battles all the way back. You have controversy down the stretch with some foul calls. At one point, it seemed like the foul calls were skewing one way with Duke. Then the foul calls skew the other way. You have Armando Baycott going down with an injury and coming back in Willis Reed style. If you saw the video, he's saying, F that, I'm not missing the rest of this game. And then, of course, the finish to the game itself. So more than anything, and we're going to get into all the details here right now, but that is my biggest takeaway. So rarely in sports do we get something so big, so meaningful, and it not only lives up to the hype, but it exceeds it. Again, I was not able to be there. I know obviously pretty much probably everybody listening to this watched it on TV at home like myself. I was actually in the Fox Sports Radio studios. But man, oh man, oh man, did it deliver into the 70 plus thousand people that were in the Superdome last night. Congratulations because that was just an instant classic and an all-timer. Now in terms of the game itself, What I would also say is my single biggest takeaway about the game itself, and let's get into some of the details. To me, the difference in this game was very, very, very simple. All tournament long, and we we criticized Duke all year, and I've talked about it on this podcast. We criticized Duke all year when they took some bad losses during the regular season of Virginia and Florida State. We criticized them when they lost to Carolina at home, which we're going to talk about in a minute. We We criticized them when they lost to Virginia Tech in the ACC tournament. But the one thing that I would say about this game more than anything else was that it was the first time once this tournament started and it was clear Duke flipped a switch and it was clear Duke believed that they were destined to win a national championship, which we'll talk about in a minute. In terms of the game itself on the court, this was the first time all tournament long 
that Duke simply didn't make more plays down the stretch. And that was what blew me away about this run for Duke. You can make fun of Coach K. You can criticize the Cameron Crazies, make fun of the Dukies, whatever you want. I'm not here to blame you for that. But at the same time, what stood out to me about this run was it was hard to be mad at Duke for being in the Final Four because they deserve to be here. The run in the second round, Sweet 16, Elite 8, it wasn't about, I've said it a million times, it wasn't about the refs, it wasn't about foul calls, it was about Duke stepping up and making bigger plays. It was about late in the Michigan State game, being down with three minutes to go, rallying to win, making more plays than Michigan State veteran team coached by a Hall of Famer, Tom Izzo. It was in the Sweet 16 against Texas Tech, a veteran, grown man, team, 23, 24, 25-year-old. Duke being tougher, Duke making plays, Duke not Duke essentially refusing to lose, and it was the same with Arkansas, where they clearly gained a bunch of confidence, and they never let Arkansas, a great program in its own right, get confidence against them like Arkansas got against Gonzaga. And so because of that, that was why Duke was in the building on Saturday, and that was why I think just about everybody picked Duke. Hall of Fame coach, in the last game of the season, or in the last weekend of the season, his final run with the best players, it is hard to bet against him when those players are playing at such a high level. I said it on Friday's show. I asked Wendell Moore at the media availability. I said, did you guys do something different? I asked Coach K, have you guys done something different? He said, no, I just got great players making great plays. And so that was what stuck out to me most about Saturday night. For the first time all year, there was a team that took Duke's best shot, their biggest punch, and punched right back and won the game. Just think about how those final two, two and a half, three, four minutes, whatever it was, went. You have the Wendell Moore tip out, to, or excuse me, the Paolo Banquero tip out to Wendell Moore for the three that gives Duke the 74-73 lead. I can't speak for all of you guys and girls that were watching this game at home or in New Orleans or at a bar or whatever, but when that play happened, I sat there and said, wait a second now, wait a second, here we go again. We saw it against Michigan State, we saw it against Texas Tech, a little bit against Arkansas. Duke is going to make the plays needed to win this game, especially after falling down by six, eight points, whatever it was in the second half. Instead, late in the game, it was Carolina that made all those plays. So the Wendell Moore three happens, Carolina or Duke goes up 74-73. What happens from there? Caleb Love immediately comes down and hits a three. Duke over Carolina overall outscores Duke 8 to 3 over the final minute and a half of the game to win the game. Now in terms of specifics, what obviously, listen, the, the story of this game is Coach K, and in many ways I'm glad about it because obviously down the stretch late for Duke, there were some things that happened that cost them this game, and I think they're going to get a little bit brushed under the rug because we're so quick to react to Duke. Nothing was bigger than the three missed free throws late, uh, two by Mark Williams, the starting center, one by Trevor Keels. And I'll just say, look, you guys know how I feel about you know, criticizing 17, 18, 19, 20-year-old college kids. I don't like to do it. I prefer not to do it. I wish I didn't have to do it. And the, the, the thing about this game is it's hard not to sit there and say that the foul shots late 
cost Duke, and I feel terrible for Mark Williams because it's something that it's going to have to carry with him forever. Um, you know, again, as I just said a minute ago, uh, Wendell Moore hits that three, and you think, okay, here we go again with Duke. Uh, R.J. Davis comes down and gets a bucket. I think I said Caleb Love hit the shot immediately after. He did not. But the bottom line was uh, R.J. Davis puts Carolina back up 75-74. Mark Williams goes to the line with a chance to put Duke up 75-74. Instead, he misses two free throws. Caleb Williams then hits the shot, and the game is over. Essentially, Trevor Keels also missed a foul shot after. But why I bring it up is because, to me, I think there's going to be a ton of focus on Coach K, and I think there's going to be a lot of talk about Mark Williams. But to me, essentially, what I saw in those missed foul shots late, two by Mark Williams, one by Trevor Keels, I think that that, to me, everyone's going to blame that that was why Duke lost. To me, that is not why Duke lost, because guess what? What is my stance always on this show and on this podcast? One missed foul shot never costs a team a game. One bad ref call never costs a team a game. And so, listen, when, when, when Arizona beat TCU in the Sweet 16, I didn't criticize the refs because I sat there and said that wasn't the play that cost anybody the game. There are a million plays throughout a game that lead to what ends up being the ultimate result, and it's never just one play. So why am I bringing it up now? It is because I think a lot of people are going to talk about Mark Williams. They're going to talk about Trevor Keels late in that game. To me, though, it was instead a metaphor for the game itself and for what I believe was a difference in the game. Like I said a minute ago, Duke did not make the plays down the stretch, and the, the, the free throws by Mark Williams and Trevor Keels, to me, were a metaphor for the game itself. Just think about this, okay? Just think about the game itself, and just look, by the way, at the box score. You guys and girls know me. I'm not a huge look-at-the-box score guy. I hate people that just look at a box score and say, well, you know, I mean, it's obvious. You know, Trevor Keels had 27 points. That's why Duke won. Like, I hate looking at the box score. But if you actually look at the box score, it actually tells the tale of the game, and I believe the free throws were a metaphor for it. First of all, Carolina, 17-24 from the foul line, shot 70%. Duke 12 of 20 from the foul line, shoot 60%. Beyond that, Carolina 10 of 26 from three, 38% from three. Duke 5 of 22 from three for 22%. Oh, by the way, Carolina out-rebounds Duke, and this was the stat that really blew me away when I went back. I was on radio reacting in real time. That really just blew me away when I saw it on a piece of paper. Duke, all tournament long, has completely controlled the paint with Mark Williams, with Paolo Bancaro, uh, with Theo John. Now, I know there were some foul issues early, but at the same time, Carolina finishes with 50 rebounds to Duke's 41 rebounds. Carolina finishes the game with 17 offensive rebounds. And so when people are going to talk about Mark Williams this or free throws that or this or that, here's the bottom line. If you just look at the box score, let's just, talk, let's just say it out loud. Duke shoots 12 of 20 from free throw line. Duke shoots 5 of 22 from three. Duke gets out-rebounded. I don't even know how they were in the game late. And it speaks to what I said a minute ago. Carolina was simply the better team all game long. I don't believe it came down to one whistle. I don't believe it came down to one or two foul shots. What I believe it comes down to is if you look at the totality of the game, Carolina was the better team. If you look at the totality of the game, who was the single best player on the court? We all darn well know who it was. It was Caleb Love, 28 points, four rebounds, one assist. Big shot late to seal the win for Carolina. 
I would argue, listen, Paulo Bancaro is maybe, I believe, maybe the best NBA prospect in this tournament. He was great in this game, 20 and 10. But I would argue the second best player in the game was North Carolina's Armando Baycott. 11 points, 21 rebounds. And this, by the way, he left the game with an injury for a while. So you talk about 21 rebounds, eight offensive rebounds, eight extra possessions that, that Carolina got because of him. I think you can argue that Carolina not only statistically won the game, they had the two best players on the court. And so that is why this game went the way it did. It had nothing. We're going to spend the next seven, eight, nine minutes talking about Coach K. But to me, what this comes down to, Carolina was the better team, the more deserving team. And at some point, we're going to talk about Carolina too. And I'll just tell you this. You talk about an ultimate trump card in a rivalry. There ain't nobody that's got a trump card like Carolina now. Coach K's final game at Cameron, L. Coach K's final game in a Final Four. On the retirement tour, Carolina wins both. Shout out to North Carolina. Congratulations on this win to me. I believe that those missed free throws were the metaphor for the entire game. Carolina was the better team. Carolina deserved to win. And we are going to continue the Carolina conversation momentarily. But right now... You know what we got to talk about because of what do I always tell you on this podcast, especially during football season? The more interesting story, say it with me, the more interesting story is oftentimes in the losing locker room. And I don't think there is a single game that is a better metaphor for that than Duke Carolina in the Final Four, April 2nd, 2022. There is not a single game that is a better metaphor for the more interesting story is in the losing locker room than Duke Carolina. Because Coach K, I think you get the point by this by this point. Coach K's career is officially done as you woke up on Sunday, April 3rd, and now today, April 4th, 2022. John Shire is officially the head coach at Duke. Duke has a new head coach for the first time since April of 1980. I put out this stat, it blows my mind. Coach K has been at Duke for 43 years. That is a really, really, really long time, okay? And I put out this stat as a metaphor. John Calipari feels like he's been at Kentucky forever. He's been there 13 years, which means that John Calipari would have to coach at, at Kentucky until 2050 to coach at Kentucky as long as Duke, as long as Mike Krzyzewski's coach at, at Duke. One, I think Kentucky fans, that's, that's making you go gray and sad just thinking about it. Two, I know there's age discrepancies. Coach K started at 30, never went to the NBA. But it just is mind-boggling how long he has been there before. So in terms of this game itself, when I think of the Duke perspective, the Coach K perspective, let's get into that part. I just talked about the game. I talked about reaction. Now I want to talk about the bigger picture because I want to talk about Duke, what it means for the program, and what is next for Duke basketball as we know it. First of all, when I think about things from the Duke perspective, three things jump out. I'll be honest. The first one is, as I record here, you know, 24 hours after the game itself went final, I am genuinely, I am still genuinely shocked that Duke lost this game. Now, like all of you, I don't think any of us wanted Duke to win the national championship, but you start looking at how this tournament plays out. I started having a hard time. I started believing, like the rest of you, that Duke, that it was inevitable, right? We start the tournament, literally nobody is picking Duke. I could be wrong. There could be some national media member somewhere 
that I missed that picked Duke to win the national championship or even to make the Final Four. If that person exists, credit to him or her. I just didn't see it. Everybody had Arizona. Everybody had Tennessee. Everybody had Villanova pre-injury. Everybody had, um, I don't know, I can't think of anybody else off the top, Gonzaga. Uh, You know, you had Kentucky, maybe Baylor, maybe UCLA, maybe whatever. Nobody had Duke. And then the tournament plays out. We just talked about it a minute ago. All the games, Duke getting more confident. And then when you start to see the path that is laid out for Duke, oh, they got to go through Carolina to win in the Elite Eight or in the Final Four. And then they have to beat Kansas, the winningest program in the history of college basketball, to win the national championship. It was like a movie script that was scripted that was so lame that it would never get pr- pr- approved. And, and so, like, when I sit back and I think about this whole thing, that's what is the number one thing that stands out to me. I still can't believe that Duke actually lost. That's not a discredit to North Carolina. That's not saying they were the more deserving team. That, that's not saying that Duke was the more deserving team. It's not saying I'm upset that Duke lost. But when we started seeing this tournament play out, and it became super obvious that Duke was playing really well at a really high level with the best players in this tournament, it felt not only inevitable that they were going to win, but it felt inevitable that the path was going to make it the greatest story in the history of college basketball. Coach K, retirement tour, beat Carolina in the Final Four, beat the winningest program, Kansas in the National Championship, Coach K cutting down nets to win it all. So when I think about this game, what I would say, first of all, that's my number one takeaway. I can't believe that Duke lost. I still cannot believe that Duke lost this game. North Carolina was a better team. They deserved to win. Secondly, as we get into the Coach K aspect of this, let me say this, and you're going to be mad at me for saying this. I am a little sad to see Coach K go, and let me explain why. It's not because I'm a Duke fan, not because I'm a Coach K lover. Never met Mickey, never met Coach K, never met any of the daughters, uh, never even met, uh, you know, I'm not a Duke guy. But here is why, to me, I am sad to see Coach K go. Because Coach K makes Duke matter, and Coach K makes college basketball matter in a way that right now nobody else in the sport does. And so let me explain that element of this. If you remember back to last Wednesday's episode, I did a segment on there was a certain media member that said, the average fan is rooting for Duke and rooting for Coach K. And I said, I don't believe that, but I do believe that this team is less hateable and that Coach K, as time has gone on, has been less hateable. That was what I said on this show on Wednesday. Well, let me tell you what you guys and girls told me. You told me, Torres, you are dead wrong. I don't think that I have ever had more reaction to a segment than the one I did on Coach K last Wednesday's show, Does America Actually Want Duke to Win? Because what you guys and girls told me, and, and, and I don't know if I just had a brain fart or if I just whiffed or whatever. I, sometimes I just got to take an L because I got something wrong. And what you guys reminded me of, I, I assume, it's not that I assumed, it's that in, in the moment, in the Final Four, the New Orleans air, the, the drinks, the, the food, it's getting to me. And I assume that most of us just kind of hate Coach K because at some point he beat our favorite team in an important moment. And what you guys and girls reminded me of was, no, 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 no. We hate him because you guys in the media praise him and throw rose petals at his feet, and he's kind of a jerk in a lot of cases. And this is to relitigate Coach K's whole career. He's done a lot of good. He's raised money for cancer. He's, raised, you know, he's done a lot of good in his life. So this isn't to throw dirt on Coach K, 
But as many of you pointed out, as many of you pointed out, he's done a lot of things that annoy people, right? Like, he's just done a lot of things that you're like, dude, just why did you do that? The, the, the incident a few years ago uh, with Pitt when Jeff Capel came in and he's yelling at the Cameron Crazies, be nice, he's one of us. Like, that was just weird. Um, you know, his defense of Grayson Allen when Grayson Allen was in defense. Well, now, Grayson Allen wasn't, uh, you know, murdering people or anything, but Grayson Allen was being an idiot, and Coach K basically acted like it was no big deal. You know, you can go through the years through the history books. Um, you can go back to the early 90s. There's a famous story of he didn't like some of the stuff that was being published in the school newspaper at Duke, and he brought in the student newspaper and ye- uh, the student newspaper staff and yelled and screamed at him. It ended up getting recorded, and it became a national story. Um, you know, there's been a lot of things on the court and off the court. People haven't liked the way he has handled things. And so why I bring it up is because of the fact that you guys and girls reminded me of it. But what it also tells me, what it also is indisputable is this. You watch Coach K, you hate, you, you may, oh, let, let me backtrack. What is indisputable in what you guys and girls told me is this. Coach K matters, okay? You may love Coach K if you're a Duke fan. Most of you hate Coach K because you're not a Duke fan, but Duke matters on the national stage, and that is why I'm sad to see him go. When I, heard, when I said I'm sad to see him go, I'm sure a lot of you were like, Torres, you're drinking the Kool-Aid like all these other guys in the media. No, I'm not. But why I'm sad to see Coach K go is because what I said a moment ago. He makes Duke matter. He makes college basketball matter. And love him or hate him, you care about Coach K. Okay, and, and what do I mean by that? Sports at its best, why we watch sports is for the emotional element of it. And the best, you know, the, the, the best things in sports, the things that you tune into more than anything are the people that are either the greatest at what they do, like a Michael Phelps. Everybody watched Michael Phelps. You could say you didn't, but you did. But more importantly, it's the best that also are somewhat controversial in some way. You do not like them. But you watch, though. You watch, and that is the important part that I'm trying to get out of this as I'm tripping over my own words here. But at the end of the day, think about sports and think about the, 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 the guys and girls that we watch the most in sports. Tom Brady, you might love him and you might hate him, but when he plays on a Sunday, you're watching. And when he announced his unretirement the other day, you were talking about it around, around the water cooler. And if you think he threw Bruce Arians under the bus and made him retire this week, you were talking about it around the water cooler. You may like Tom Brady, you may hate Tom Brady, but when Tom Brady plays, you watch. It's the same to an extent in the NBA with LeBron James. LeBron James, you love, you, you love watching him because he's one of the two best players that's ever played the game, or you hate watching him because he's exhausting and he kind of has a Coach K vibe about he says weird stuff in the media, he does weird stuff, he makes weird comments, all that stuff. Same in other sports. Floyd Mayweather, you watch him because you love him, you watch him because you hate him, you buy his pay-per-views. Conor McGregor was the same when Conor McGregor was at his peak. Tiger Woods, I don't know if anybody really hated Tiger Woods, but you watched because he was compelling, and that was what Duke brought. That's what Coach K brought to Duke, and that was why I was sad to see him go on Saturday. Because when he goes, what you cannot argue is that the biggest, most notable name, most notable face in the sport is no longer here. And in a sport where increasingly the players come and go quicker and quicker, it is a sport that is defined by the coaches. 
Now, what I will say is later this week, after the season is done, what I do want to do is go through a segment and talk about who is the next face of college basketball, who is the next guy that is going to take that mantle from Coach K. I think there's only one or two names, but I bring it up because nobody is going to elicit more emotion from opposing fans than Coach K will. And again, it's because of what I said on Wednesday, because he beats you at some point, but it's also because of all the things that he did off the court to drive you crazy. But you tuned in to watch. You tuned in to watch. You tuned in to care because you do care about Coach K and because you either wanted to see him win or more likely you wanted to see that guy lose. And so as we wake up here on Sunday and Monday and realize that Coach K is out of our lives, I'm just a little bit sad about it because college basketball, I don't want to say it becomes less relevant, but I do think Duke becomes somewhat less hateable, which brings me to the final point, and then we'll stop, we'll get to Carolina, we'll preview Monday's games. But what I, my other big thought, not just big thought about, uh, about this game, what about Duke basketball as a whole? I think the big question now becomes, is Duke as hateable without Coach K? Is Duke as hateable without Coach K? Because when I look at the situation, I don't know that they are. And I also had a realization over the last couple days about the future of Duke basketball as John Shire is now the head coach of Duke. And this is going to upset some of you when I say it. The absolute best thing for college basketball would be if John Shire is absolutely awesome. He's got the number one recruiting class coming in. And the best thing for college basketball going forward would be if John Shire, with all the five stars he's got coming in, Derek Lively, Kyle Filipowski, Derek Whitehead, for people who don't follow recruiting, they got a loaded class coming in. The best thing that could happen for Duke basketball and for college basketball is for Duke to be awesome again next year, to be like 28-5 and in a one seed heading into the NCAA tournament. Because the worst thing that can happen for Duke basketball is to be the worst thing is to be something that they have not been over the last couple years, which is a national talking point in this sport every single season. Now, look, we all know that this was Duke's first Final Four since 2015. We all know that Coach K, you know, what is it, two Final Fours in however many years since 2004. So, uh, what was no, three Final Fours, so 2010, 2015, 2022. So we're really talking over the last, like, 15, 16 years, three Final Fours. But at the same time, they have mattered every single year. And that's why I think it's important for college basketball for John Shire to be a really awesome coach. I mean, just think about, imagine if you've hated Duke your whole life, which most of us have. Imagine if John Shire comes out and goes 31-3 and next season and has Duke back in the Final Four. You know what you're going to be thinking as you tune into that Final Four game? Oh, my God. Did they just find the next Coach K? Oh, my God. Was Coach K actually holding this program back? Oh, my God. Am I in for another 40 years of Duke basketball being dominant and awesome and getting all the best players and being the biggest storyline every single year? You can argue with me. You can fight with me. That would be the best thing possible for college basketball. The worst thing possible would be, one, if Duke is either really bad or if they're just okay. I think in, in a lot of ways, being really bad would be very entertaining in its own right. But the one thing they can't be is just kind of okay. The one thing they can't be is eh. And what, why do I bring it up? It is because when I think about Duke, what they cannot be next year is like 23-8 and eight and a four seed and lose in the first round. What they cannot be in 2024 is 22-11 and 11 and a six seed and lose in the first round. 
because college basketball, while there are a lot of other great programs, and again, like I said, later this week, we're going to talk about who is the face of college basketball. What does Duke exits? What does Duke's exit mean for Carolina? What does it mean for Kentucky? What does it mean for Arizona? What does it mean for Villanova, Kansas, whoever? These programs that maybe they step in to become the next Duke. But you know what will also be good for college basketball? If John Calipari keeps Kentucky at a, a very high level, and I know it's easy to criticize John Calipari right now, but if he keeps them at a level where they're getting a 1-2 seed every year competing for a national championship, if Mark Few does what he has done over the last 20 years, get Gonzaga on the cusp again and again and again and again, um, if some of these other programs, whether it's Arkansas with, uh, with Eric Musselman, whether it's uh, you know Juwan Howard at Michigan, whoever, if those programs continue to elevate, and then, oh, by the way, Duke is still awesome too. So I don't want to belabor the point, but that is my thought. Duke does feel just a little bit less hateable right now without Coach K. And then on top of that, what I would also say is not only do they feel less hateable, the only way to get them back to their level of hateability is for them to be awesome again. So you can disagree. I want to get to Carolina. I want to preview Monday night's game. But I did just want to say I do think that you know, college basketball lost a little something without Coach K last night, and I know it's easy in the moment to just be excited, easy in the moment to just um, to, to to just be happy that Coach K is gone. But at some point, you're going to tune into a Duke game next year, and it's just not going to be the same rooting against rooting against Duke without Coach K. All right, so what I want to do. I want to take a quick break, uh, long opening segment, but what can you say? It's a, you know, we got an all-timer there. So I'm going to take a quick break, going to come back, going to talk about the Carolina perspective of what happened on Saturday night. With Duke, Coach K out the door, is Carolina an emerging, uh, yeah, I don't want to call them a power, they, they're competitive every year, but are they emerging as one of those next great, great, great programs in the post-Coach K era? They've been there. They now appear to have their guy in Hubert Davis, Hubert Davis, my man, I owe you an apology. I'll be right back. All right, everybody. I'm back. Good to be back. Good to be back. I do want to switch gears. Did talk a lot about Duke in that opening segment, and rightfully so, right? I mean, listen, at the end of the day, um, as I often say, as I just said, the more interesting stories in the losing locker room, Duke was the probably more interesting story coming out of Saturday night. But that also doesn't mean that North Carolina isn't an interesting story in its own right. As the Tar Heels picked up what I would argue, I don't even think it's really arguable, the biggest win in a non-championship game in the history of their program. If we have North Carolina fans listening, you're welcome to chime in and tell me what's bigger than beating Duke in the final game of Coach K's career, in the Final Four, to advance to a national championship. So I know North Carolina has six national championships, and I'm not saying this game is bigger than some of the other title game wins, but I would argue the non-championship games is the biggest win in Carolina history. And so an incredible day to be a Tar Heels fan. Uh, as I've said for really about a week now, you talk about the ultimate trump card in a rivalry. It doesn't get better than knocking out your rival in the Final Four to advance to a championship game, also ending the other team's historic coach's career, right? Like, like you talk about the ultimate trump card in a rivalry. I don't care what Duke does over the next four, five, six, 10, 12, 15 years. I don't care if they win 10 in a row. I don't care if they win by 100 at, at the Dean Dome. Uh, John Shire holding up the Wilt Chamberlain 100 sign. They win 100. Nothing will top this. Doesn't matter what happens. You know what every Carolina fan's going to say? April 2nd, 2022. Suck it, Duke fans. 
So North Carolina, just an unbelievable win. You don't want to call it a program-defining win or anything like that because they've won six national championships in their school history. But it really was, in a lot of ways, a regime-defining win, if you will, for Hubert Davis. And so I do want to get into the bigger picture with Carolina, and I do want to talk about my boy Hubert Davis because what I would say is I was very critical of Hubert Davis early. Uh, I think it was largely justified, but Carolina fans let me know about those Hubert Davis comments after the win on Saturday night. I deserve it. I take the blame. I was wrong. You guys were right. Um, And let's get into Hubert Davis because I don't think that I have ever been I don't think I've ever done a quicker 360 on a head coach than Hubert Davis. As recently as about six to eight weeks ago, I'm not sure that I totally trusted that he was the right guy for Carolina. Now I have completely come full circle, and I will say this. I believe that he, who he is, how he coaches, I believe we are largely looking at the future of college basketball. Not saying he's the next Coach K, not saying he's the next Roy Williams, not saying that he's guaranteed to win two, three, four, five national titles because those things are hard. But what I am saying is when I look at who he is, how he handled this program, and how he has elevated Carolina, I think there's a big case to, to make that he looks like the future of college basketball in terms of how he has run this program. And so to go through again, and I'm not going to relitigate everything because we've talked a lot about Carolina's path over the last two or three episodes, but at the same time, when I was critical of, of Hubert Davis and Carolina early in the year, it was justified. The final scores speak for themselves. Lost, to te- by Tennessee to, lost by 17 to Tennessee. Lost by 29 to Carolina. Lost by 28 to Miami. Lost by 22 to Wake Forest. And lost by 20 to Duke in the first matchup. Yes, I was critical, but so were all these Carolina fans that were really wondering if this was the right decision. There was a time where this team looked soft. Hubert Davis said it himself at his press conferences earlier this week. There was a time that this team looked disengaged, disinterested, uninterested in wearing that Carolina blue. They looked like they cared more about the name on the back of the jersey than the front of the jersey. I know it is cliche, but we also, again saw it over and over again for about a five, six-week period. That's also what makes the last, I don't know, five, six weeks that much more impressive is how Hubert Davis got it turned around. Because to, to, to go to Saturday first and then work our way backwards over the course of the season, I don't think there's any doubt that Carolina was the more confident team, the more well-prepared team. You look at that game, and I've been talking about it a lot through this NCAA tournament. There was one team that came out with a specific game plan that felt like it was uniquely built to beat Duke. They put the ball in Caleb Love's hand, made Caleb, let, let Caleb Love make plays. They took away Mark Williams down low. They attacked the paint with Armando Baycott. I know he only finished with 11 points, but again, eight offensive rebounds, 21 rebounds overall. Armando Baycott was the best player in the paint in a game where Duke has two top 15 picks in Mark Williams and Paolo Bancaro. They limited three-point shots. They put pressure on Duke late and made Duke be the one to make plays. And Duke, for the first time all season, didn't simply, simply didn't have answers. Listen, I'm not old enough to remember the 1991 title or the 1991 semifinal when Duke beat UNLV a year after UNLV had destroyed them in the title game. But you read about it and you hear about it. That was the storyline. Put pressure on them late. All the pressure's on them. That's what Carolina did on Saturday. And that was what allowed them to win. And so what I would say is Saturday really, to me, was a metaphor of an entire season. 
This team did not have it easy. Yes, they were ranked in the top 15, top 20 to start the season, but this was not an easy deal, and I would take it a step further. Not only has it not been easy with all those early season losses, but on top of that, it wasn't even an easy path in the tournament. Yeah, you destroy Marquette in round one, but then you have that weird Baylor game where you blow a 20-point lead you easily could have lost, you easily could have fallen in the second round, and you're resilient and you find a way to win. You play UCLA in the Sweet 16, and it's a back-and-forth game. You find a way to win. And then more importantly, you get to that Elite Eight game, and everybody else has been looking past St. Peter's all year. You leave no doubt and put yourself in position to win. And so to me, it speaks to who Carolina is that they won this game because they have gotten more confident all year. They have bought in more all year. And listen, I don't care that they're an eight seed, a two seed, a seven seed, or whatever. I don't think there's anyone that would argue that right now the two teams that are playing the best in college basketball are playing for the national championship. Now, we'll talk about the the championship game in a minute. We'll preview the championship game in a minute. And it's not to say that it's been easy for Kansas or Carolina or that I would have even said 10 or 12 days ago that these teams were the best teams in college basketball, but they are right now, and they deserve to be in the title game. What I would also say is it shows me what Hubert Davis has done with this program, um, and I continue to just be so impressed. And I, I go back to being at the press availability on Thursday and Friday where Hubert Davis talked about it. He said, look, it wasn't easy, but one, to his credit, he never lost confidence in himself and his game plan and what he did even when guys like me and other national media members and certainly local media members were questioning it, let alone fans, message boards, social media, whatever. But two, he instilled that confidence in his players, and that's what continues to be so amazing to me. I asked him specifically, at one of the press conferences earlier this week, I asked him, I said, Coach, you guys flipped the switch after that Duke game. You go back to that first Duke loss, it's an embarrassing loss, and at that point, uh, Carolina was, I believe, 16-7 and seven overall. Well, since that Duke game, Carolina is 13-2 and two with two wins over Duke, one to end Coach K's career, one to end his time at Cameron. They beat the reigning national champion, Baylor. They beat UCLA. They beat the tournament dar- darling, St. Peter's. And I said, Coach, how has this happened? And he gave what I thought was a very insightful answer. He said, look, it's not easy coaching young kids. It's not easy getting through to these guys and girls. Um, But I had to trust my message, and I had to trust that they would figure it out for themselves. He said, I myself am a parent, okay? Um, I wish that my kids listened to everything that I said the first time, but that's not realistic. And sometimes you have to let them make mistakes. You have to let them learn on your own, on their own, and you have to let them gain confidence and knowledge through their failures. And so when I heard that, I was like, oh my God, I'm completely sold because what is clear to me and being around Hubert Davis and watching this team over the last five, six, seven weeks is that that's exactly what happened. He gave them the distance. He let them learn the tough lessons and they grew together. He as a coach was confident in what he was doing and over time, the players trusted him, bought into him, bought into who he is and what he was selling and now they are playing at the highest level. And so when I say that I believe that he is the future of college basketball, what I mean is that he is an archetype of what coaching in in the 2020s and 2030s is going to look like, okay? And what I mean by that is this, okay? We all of a certain age, I'm, I'm in my 30s, many of you are in your 20s, whatever, some in your 40s, 50s, whatever. Most of us all know the types of coaches that we grew up watching. In college basketball, it was Bobby Knight. 
I grew up with Jim Calhoun. Many of you grew up with Rick Pitino, Coach K, Tom Izzo. What do all of those guys have in common? And by the way, it was the same in football. Uh, whether it was Nick Saban, whether it was, uh, you know, Urban My- There was a certain prototype and archetype as to who you were as a coach if you want to have success. You had to be a yeller and screamer. It had to be my way or the highway. You're going to come in this program. You're going to do it my way. You're going to learn the hard way. I'm going to put you on the bench. And if it takes two or three years and you got to figure it out, then you got to figure it out. That is how we grew up. And I'm not saying that that was wrong for that era. What I would also say is in the one-time transfer portal era, when guys and girls can leave as quickly as they want, they do it in high school, they'll play two, three, four high schools in four years, they play in a bunch of different AAU teams, guys aren't going to stick around. And more importantly, they're not going to get yelled at. You cannot uh, you know, tear people down and build them back up. Like That's not what the future of college sports looks like, and that's not what the future of coaching looks like. And so to me, I think Hubert Davis, again, is the perfect coach for this era going forward in Carolina basketball, the same way that I look at some of these successful young coaches in college football. Ryan Day. Would you describe Ryan Day as a yeller and screamer at Ohio State? I certainly wouldn't. Lincoln Riley, would you describe Lincoln Riley as a yeller and screamer in college football? I wouldn't. Sean McVay, Kyle Shanahan, Cliff Kingsbury. I know I'm not, I probably shouldn't put Cliff Kingsbury with those two other guys, but they're not yellers and screamers. What they are is communicators, collaborators, and they allow their message to get through without yelling and screaming. And so to bring it back to Hubert Davis, that's why I think he's the future. Because this year for Carolina, he showed the way to coach this team, to get this team to buy in, and to get this team to believe in what he wants, but doing it in a, again, what I just said, a collaborative way, communicative way, not yelling, not screaming, whatever. And so now you have Carolina playing for a title, and it's because this guy was able to get his message across in a way that the players believed in, that the players bought into. It took them a while, but they eventually got there. And so I don't want to belabor the point on on North Carolina. I do want to get to uh, a little bit of a preview of of Monday night's game because we got a game on Monday night that we got to talk about. But I'd be remiss if I did not mention Hubert Davis and the incredible job that he has done with this program. So yeah, with that, I do want to take a quick break. I want to come back. We'll wrap. Preview Monday's national championship game. What a game we got. Kansas versus North Carolina. We'll be right back. All right, we're going to get to the national championship game preview in a minute. But before we do, our partners at DraftKings and the DraftKings Sportsbook have an incredible offer for first-time users. Here's what it is. Bet $5 on either team tonight. Do you like Rock Chalk Jayhawk? Do you like North Carolina? Either one. Bet $5 on the money line. Just pick them to win or lose. And if your team wins, you get $200 in free bets courtesy of DraftKings and the DraftKings Sportsbook. Here's how you take advantage. First of all, click the link in the show description. Listen on Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, Google Music. There is a link in the show description. Click that link and sign up for a new account. From there, make a deposit Bet $5 on either team. You like Kansas, bet five on them. You like five on North Carolina, bet five on them. And if your team wins, you get $200 courtesy of our friends at DraftKings, the DraftKings Sportsbook, our incredible partners all season long. This offer lasts literally for one more game because there is only one more game in the college basketball season. So make sure to go ahead and act now. 
If you or someone you know has gambling problem, crisis counseling and referral services can be accessed by calling 1-800-GAMBLER, 1-800-426-2537 in Illinois. Gambling problem, call 1-800-GAMBLER in Michigan, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, West Virginia, Wyoming, 1-800-9 within Indiana, 1-800-522-4700 in Colorado, 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa, 1-888-532-3500 in Virginia, 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona, or call or text Tennessee Redline at 1-800-889-9789 in Tennessee. Must be 21 plus or over to enter, 18 plus or over in Wyoming, Arizona, Colorado, Illinois, Indiana, Iowa, Michigan, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Tennessee, Virginia, West Virginia, Wyoming, Louisiana, New York only. Minimum $5 deposit, minimum $5 wager. Eligibility restrictions apply. See DraftKings.com slash Sportsbook for full terms and conditions. All right, everybody. I am back. Good to be back. Good to be back. Final segment of the show. Thank you again to our partners, DraftKings and the DraftKings Sportsbook. Incredible offer. First-time users. Make sure that you take advantage. With that said, uh, it's time to wrap the show. And we're going to talk national championship game in a minute. But before we do, there is one thing that you have probably noticed that I have completely skipped over on this show. And that is, oh, the other Final Four game that happened between Kansas and Villanova but at the end of the day, I just don't know what there is to say about the game. The final score, 81-65, to Kansas beats Villanova. And there just really is no big, incredible takeaway from this game. Uh, we came in go- knowing that, you know, and even going back to Thursday, Friday's show, uh, you know, I said, look, I-, I love Villanova. I think you can make the case that Jay Wright is the best coach in college basketball, that Villanova is the best program in college basketball. But one, they were coming into that game incredibly shorthanded. They only played seven players all year. One of their backups, Jordan Longino, got hurt in the lead-up to the second weekend of the tournament, the Sweet 16. Then Justin Moore goes down in the final minute of the Elite Eight. You feel terrible for him, but you knew it was always going to be an uphill battle for Villanova. Beyond that, the thing that Villanova has struggled with all season long has been sized down low. I remember I was at the Villanova-UCLA game back in early November. I mean, the second weekend of the season, and we were talking about that. We were talking about how much Villanova all season long was going to struggle with big physical teams. They struggled with it against UCLA. They struggled with it against Purdue. They struggled with it throughout the season against Baylor, which is kind of big and physical both on the wings and down low at the time when Baylor was healthy. And so I bring it up because that was Villanova's weakness all year. They're down a couple key players, and they got exposed down low. David McCormick played the game of his life, 25 points, 9 rebounds. Jalen Wilson was great. Ochai Abaji kind of got out of his funk. And so I just don't know that there was anything major to take away out of that Kansas game. Kansas was a 4, 4.5, 5-point favorite, depending on, uh, you know, when you got the number. And they clearly covered in a game that they largely dominated. And so I think Villanova had an incredible season. The bottom line is, even in the Final Four, three of these teams are going to go home happy. And while I thought there was a million little takeaways coming out of Duke Carolina, Coach K's final game, what it means for Carolina, all that good stuff, I just don't know that there was anything amazing to come out of that Villanova-Kansas game. So that's my, my, my what, 90-second to two-minute Villanova-Kansas spiel. Don't think I'll ever in the history of this podcast talk less about a Final Four game, but it just feels like there isn't a ton of takeaway from Villanova and Kansas. 
Um, you know, I do think Villanova had an amazing season. I do think they're one of the best programs in college basketball. I love Jay Wright. I love the program that he's built. They were shorthanded. The better team won on Saturday. And now Kansas advances to play North Carolina. And so with that said, it took a little while. That Duke, uh, that Duke UNC recap took a long time. But we are finally, whatever we are, 40, 42, 45 minutes into this show, we are finally previewing Monday's championship game, Kansas versus North Carolina. Kansas versus North Carolina, the game that I guarantee nobody picked. We have about, I think, 400, 300 people that signed up for the Aaron Torres Podcast Bracket Challenge. We had zero pick North Carolina and Kansas for the title game. So if you somewhere in some far-off bracket picked that, good for you. But nobody picked that game. It is the game nobody could have predicted. But what I would say as we start to get into this national championship game is this. I do think that weirdly, these are the two best teams in college basketball, and these are two worthy participants in the championship game. It sounds crazy. It sounds weird. To be clear, I don't think they were the two best teams over the course of the season, obviously with North Carolina being an eight seed. I don't even know if they were the two best teams a month ago, three weeks ago, two weeks ago, heading into the Final Four. But when you look at how they played Saturday, when you look at how they've played over the totality of whether it's two, three, four games or six, seven, eight games, I don't think that there's any doubt that based on what took place on the court on on Saturday night in the Final Four and on the court over this NCAA tournament, we have the right two teams playing for the national championship. And I really do wonder, as we get into this game, first of all, I, I want to talk a little bit about just the, the two paths to get here, because we talked about it a little bit on Friday's show, but I think it's worth revisiting here. And I really do wonder if this is the new world of college basketball that we are about to enter, especially in this transfer portal era where players are coming and going more than they ever have before. Even at a place like Gonzaga, a place like wherever, Virginia, Villanova, I mean, this is a new world of college basketball where player, where we just don't have these programs where guys stay three, four, five years, where they lose in the first round as sophomores, and then as, a, as juniors, they get to the Final Four, and then as seniors, they win the national championship. And I think these two teams are a metaphor for that because, again, I don't think they were the best teams a month ago. They certainly weren't the best teams in January, December, November, but I do think they're the best teams now. And so when I look at Kansas, I think Kansas actually might be a better metaphor. We just spent a ton of time talking North Carolina. So let's get into Kansas's path because I think Kansas's path to the title game is one of the most incredible that I've ever seen. On the one hand, number one seed. On the one hand, Big 12 regular season and tournament champion. On the other hand, you can't lie and claim that you knew this was going to happen. I'll tell you a funny story. By the way, when I say can't lie that this is going to happen, I mean even when they won the Big 12 regular season, even when they won the Big 12 tournament, you can't sit there and lie and say that you knew this was going to happen. And let me explain why. I'll tell you a funny story. Saturday night, I'm doing Fox Sports Radio with my regular partner, Jason Martin. Love working with Jason. We're coming on right as that Duke Carolina game is really starting to heat up. But obviously, we didn't have the result at the time. We didn't know it was going to turn into an all-timer. And so we started the show talking Villanova and Kansas. And my buddy Jason said, man, I really think that I undersold how good Kansas was over the course of the year. Now, Jason was being modest. Jason is great at what he does. Uh, but I bring it up because I said, Jason, I don't think that you undersold Kansas at all. Let's look at Kansas's NCAA tournament path so far. 
prior to like the last three halves when they were awesome, just think about what Kansas's path was in the NCAA tournament. In the second round, they played a Creighton team that was down their starting point guard, Ryan Nemhard, who, by the way, was actually the backup to start the year because a kid named Sharif Mitchell got hurt. So basically down their top two point guards. And in the first round, Ryan Kalkbrenner, the starting center, goes down with an injury as well. Creighton is down two starters, three key players from the start of the year, and Kansas barely holds on to beat them. In the Sweet 16, we all watched that game. Providence, uh, that game was sloppy from the beginning. Remy Martin comes off the bench with 13 points in the first half. If he doesn't score those 13 points, Kansas doesn't beat Providence in a game where they won by four in the Sweet 16. And then, oh, by the way, in the Elite Eight, They were down at halftime to Miami. So this idea that anyone could have seen Kansas coming, I don't think it's a stretch to say they haven't played their best basketball until forget the last three weeks of the season, forget the last three games of the season, the last three halves that they've played are really when they started to figure it out. And some people say, well, they won the Big 12 regular season, they won the Big 12 tournament. We'll go back before the Big 12 tournament. They lost their, uh, the, the, a week before the season ended, they lost to TCU. They get a rematch against TCU at home, barely win that. And then they play Texas at home on senior day and need to go to overtime to beat Texas. So it's not as though they were playing great in the regular season. It's not as though they dominated the Big 12 tournament. And it's not as though they dominated the, the, the early part of this tournament. But I really think it's the most obvious cliche going, survive in advance. You don't have to beat all 67 teams in the tournament. You just got to beat the five, six that you have to play to win a championship. It's really funny. I'll tell you a quick side story before we get to Carolina. I was at the media availability last Thursday, and somebody asked Paulo Bancaro, the Duke star, I know you had this team and that team and blah, 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 but did you see the scenario where maybe down the road you could play Carolina in the Final Four? And he was like, no. No, we were focused on the the three teams that we could have to play in Greenville in our opening rounds, then the three teams in the Sweet 16 and the Elite Eight, and then we got here and Carolina was waiting. And so I think Kansas is a perfect metaphor for that. They didn't have to worry about Arizona, Gonzaga, Kentucky, Tennessee, Auburn, whoever, UCLA. They just had to beat the five teams in front of them, and here they are. They got hot against Miami in the Elite Eight. They dominate Villanova, and now they're playing for a national championship. With North Carolina, it's much the same. We just kind of discussed their path last segment when it came to Hubert Davis, but it's still incredible. I think for, for North Carolina, they, they weren't as consistently good as Kansas, but again, Kansas wasn't great all year. They won the games they had to to win the Big 12 regular season, the Big 12 tournament, but Kansas wasn't dominant all year. And I do think North Carolina started to figure it out over the course of, uh, over the, course of the ACC regular season late in the season beating Duke. But let's stop pretending as though this North Carolina run we all saw coming. I had North Carolina go back to the bracket show. I had them losing in the first round to Marquette. But even after they beat Marquette, barely survive against Baylor, the reigning national champion. In a game where Brady Manick, the weird ejection, and oh, by the way, uh, they needed overtime to beat Baylor in a game they were up 25 points in in one game. UCLA, that game could have gone either way. I know for a fact there's people at UCLA that listen to this show, and they're going to text me in the morning to say, Torres, you're right, we had that team on the ropes, and Caleb Love went crazy. 
And so you beat UCLA, you dominate St. Peter's, and it sets up a scenario where those three or four games give you the confidence going into Duke to say, look, we just beat the reigning national champs. We just beat UCLA, who played in the Final Four. We just played St. Peter's. We just dominated St. Peter's, who was the story of the tournament, knocked out Purdue and Kentucky. You think, do you think Duke, a team that we already beat, is going to scare us? No. And so here we are, North Carolina, Kansas, and I do think that this is the new world of college basketball, where sometimes at certain points it's going to take a while for teams to figure it out. And this is, like, I guess this is probably my, my single biggest takeaway. The more that I think about it, the more that I think in the new world of college basketball, with the one-time transfer, when it's harder to keep teams together, I think this just might be where we are in college basketball. You saw all season long. A team like Auburn faded late. They didn't have success in the tournament. A team like Kentucky faded late. They didn't have success in the tournament. Now, there were teams like Tennessee that were playing great going into the tournament that didn't have success. But I think it's going to be teams like North Carolina that might not be the number one seed, but that are playing better than some of the number one seeds coming into the tournament as proof in their second round game against Baylor. It might be a team like Kansas that barely survives in round one, but all of a sudden, their pieces started to gel because they really haven't had their full roster all year, and they start to click and they start to play their best down the stretch. And so as I look to Monday night's game, like I said, I do think that we have, I believe, the two best teams, the two most deserving teams based on their play in the NCAA tournament, and now we have a real fun one. And in terms of what to expect, I guess what I would say is I think there are four key matchups in this game and then I will give my prediction, or four keys, I guess you would say, and then I'll give my prediction on who I think will win. The first one, I do think it is the emotional state of North Carolina, okay? And I know it's super cliche, and I know it's super obvious, and I know it's something that's been discussed by probably every college basketball podcast and radio show and whatever, but I do worry a little bit about North Carolina and their emotion coming into this game. Now, to be fair, I worried a little bit about their emotion after the St. Peter's game. I saw Hubert Davis crying on the sidelines. I saw him saying that, you know, we, we're fighting. We, you know, I wanted this moment for these guys. I'm so happy. And I did wonder, could they then take that emotion of advancing to an, a Final Four from an Elite Eight and bring it to the court on Saturday? They, of course, did. It was probably helped by the fact that they were playing their single biggest rival in all of basketball in, in the Duke Blue Devils. But now I do worry about North Carolina coming into this game because I do worry about the emotion of it all. A very emotional, think about just North Carolina's path, a very emotional second round game against Baylor, rally to win. A very emotional UCLA game in which they easily could have lost in the Sweet 16. An emotional St. Peter's game where Hubert Davis is literally crying on the sidelines talking about how happy he is that his players got this moment. Then you beat Duke in the Final Four, and now you got to get up for another game? I do worry a little bit about that. I do worry about if North Carolina is going to be able to pull up the energy for yet another game, because if you watch that game on Saturday night, I'll tell you this, I thought it was incredible, credit to North Carolina, incredible win over Duke, but they celebrated on the court like they won a national championship. They celebrated on, uh, on Franklin Street on UNC's campus like they won a national championship. They stormed the court at the Dean Dome as if they won a national championship. And when I say that, there were fans at the Dean Dome watching the game who stormed the court to celebrate. 
And so I do worry about the emotional situation with North Carolina. I know it's a national championship game. I know you're going to be excited. But this does have some big Miracle on Ice 1980 vibes. If you remember the Miracle on Ice, I'm not going to do like a history lesson here, but the win against Russia wasn't for the gold medal. And he had to get up and he had to play another game. And is North Carolina going to be able to do that? I think, uh, you know, number two in terms of the most interesting elements of this game is the Kansas perspective. You know who was probably the happiest guy watching that Duke Carolina game on Saturday night? It was Bill Self. And I'll be real. I got a lot of Gonzaga-Baylor vibes watching those two games on Saturday night. If you go back to last year's NCAA tournament, last year's Final Four, think about that Final Four. Baylor and Houston play early. What happens? Baylor blows out Houston. They never break a sweat. They win going away onto the championship game. After that, what happens? Gonzaga plays UCLA. It's an all-timer. It's back and forth. It's big shots. It's emotion. It's Jalen Suggs hitting a shot and jumping on the scorer's table, and everybody's going crazy. And it's an emotional win, and you don't come down from the high, and everybody's excited. The next day, all anybody wants to do is talk about it, and Baylor's just sitting there licking their chops like, man, these guys aren't over last night. We're ready to go. And I do wonder if it's the same with Kansas. Nobody's talking about Kansas on Sunday. Nobody's talking about Kansas on early Monday. Everybody's talking about North Carolina, the historic win, ending Coach K's career. Listen to the first 40 minutes of this show. All it was was Coach K versus North Carolina, Duke versus North Carolina. And so I am getting some big, some big, big, big uh, UCLA versus Gonzaga vibes and Houston versus Baylor vibes from last season. Now, in terms of the actual on-the-court stuff, I do think ultimately this game really, in my opinion, essentially comes down to two key things. One it is North Carolina stars. They really rely on two, three guys to carry them every game offensively. Can those guys deliver versus the depth of guys that can beat you in a number of different ways from Kansas? When I look at North Carolina, look, we know what it comes down to in terms of offense. North Carolina has been awesome offensively this tournament. 81 points against Duke, 69 against St. Peter's in a game that, let's be honest, that game was over 10 minutes in. 73 against UCLA, 93 against Baylor, 95 against Marquette. But really, ultimately, the scoring really comes from two to three guys, and those two to three guys need to be on every night for this Carolina team to have the success needed to win a national championship game against Kansas. The first guy... You probably know where I'm going. It's a little guy named Caleb Love. I think you can argue Caleb Love has been the best player in this tournament, and he has certainly been the most clutch player in this tournament, coming up with one big play after another after another. I'm not sure if Carolina beats UCLA in the Sweet 16 if Caleb Love doesn't get all of his 30 points in that game. I'm not sure if they beat Duke if he doesn't get all of his 28 points against Duke. As a matter of fact, I'm positive of it because that three in the final 30 seconds is essentially what I, what uh, what clinched that victory. And so because of it, I absolutely believe that, that North Carolina not only needs Caleb Love to be operating at the highest level, but also other guys that have contributed all season long as well. Brady Manick was obviously awesome early in the tournament, 28 points in the opening round of the tournament, 26 points against Baylor before he fouled out. R.J. Davis, 30 points against Baylor, and of course, 18 points on Saturday night. They need every one of those perimeter points from, from all three of those guys, as opposed to Kansas, 
who it feels like is getting contributions from different players on any given night. Earlier in the tournament, we've talked about it throughout. It was Remy Martin. Remy Martin, the Kansas transfer, or the uh, Arizona State transfer, excuse me. This was a guy that started the season in Bill Self's doghouse and then later in the season got hurt, and he didn't really ultimately figure it out until the NCAA tournament. Then all of a sudden, early in the tournament, this is the guy that carried him. 20 points against Creighton, 23 against Providence. I just talked about all of it. They're not here if it isn't for Remy Martin, their sixth man off the bench. And then you advance to the championship game, or the, the, the Final Four, excuse me, against Villanova, where all of a sudden, Remy Martin goes for three points. But guess what? Ochai Abaji, who had struggled all tournament long, plays the best game of his tournament, 21 points, six of seven from three, on top of that, David McCormick plays his best game of the tournament, 25 points, 9 rebounds. I would argue Christian Brown plays his best game of the tournament with 10 points and 5 assists. I know he scored more in a couple of tournament games. I think he that was as well as he played all, all tournament. And Jalen Wilson comes through with 11 points and 12 rebounds. And so to me, what it really comes down to is if you can limit one to two guys from North Carolina, you have a great shot of beating them. Now, nobody's been able to do it through five games, so it's not as though it's easy. But if you can limit one to two guys from Carolina, then all of a sudden you got yourself a puncher's chance, whereas Kansas all of a sudden with the way that they're playing now, they got five, six guys that can beat you depending on the night. I think, too, what it ultimately comes down to is really the inside play. And I'm fascinated to see the health of Armando Baycott. Uh, if you listen to Bill, uh, uh, Hubert Davis's press conferences earlier on Sunday, he talked a lot about Armando Baycott being limited. He was going to practice, but it was going to be a very light practice for him. We know he left that game against Duke where he was an absolute warrior with an ankle injury. He comes back, 11 points, 21 rebounds, and he really is essentially most of the size that that is on UNC's roster the big thing with Hubert Davis when he took over Roy Williams for years loved to play that two big system where they would play you know two big guys on the court at the same time well Roy Williams leaves and now it's really on Armando Baycott to do a lot of the heavy lifting when it comes to uh the the interior presence the the battles down low all that good stuff and so it's really on Armando Baycott to be awesome down low because Carolina simply doesn't have a lot of bodies to throw at people down there. Baycott, by the way, how about this for a stat? That 11 points, 21 rebounds against Duke, it was his second straight 20-plus rebound game of this tournament and his fourth straight 15-plus rebound of this tournament. Listen, Oscar Shibway won National Player of the Year on Sunday and deservedly so. But how about Armando Baycott with 15-plus boards in four straight tournament games? This guy is a boss and a hoss down low, and I think that is where the game is ultimately going to be won. Can he get his points? Can he get his buckets? And can he limit David McCormick? Or can David McCormick, the kid that was so good against Villanova on Saturday, be just as good and get his points down low for Kansas? Now, in terms of the game... I'm just going to say it, a couple things. I'm just going to throw it out there. One, I'm here's my pick right now. A drum roll, please. My 2022 national championship pick is Kansas, and I'll tell you why. It's a few reasons. First of all, listen, we all know, if you guys are longtime listeners of the Aerator Sports Podcast, you know darn well. You know who my preseason college football national championship pick was. It was Georgia. 
How about my dogs? Sorry, my voice is cracking. I've been talking nonstop for like four straight days here. Forgive me. But I picked Georgia to win the national championship in football. Then they get smoked by Alabama in the SEC championship game. And then on top of that, once we get to the title game, I bailed on Georgia and picked Bama. Well, you know who my national championship pick was in the preseason in basketball? Kakaw, kakaw. It was Kansas. You think I'm picking Kansas to lose this game after the experience that I had with Georgia? You must be out of your mind. So that's one, and my voice is really starting to go. I don't know if I'm going to even be able to do a show on Tuesday or Monday night after the game. But what I would say is, one, I'm picking Kansas because I can't be dumb enough to, pit, to bet against my preseason national championship pick. But two, listen, I think it comes down to a few things. One, I do think this is finally the game where the emotional drain from North Carolina starts to show up. I just don't know how they can get up for yet another game. I know it's a national championship game. That sounds stupid. But this is like the fifth straight game that in some way, shape, or form is going to be emotionally draining. Kansas coming off basically a very easy Elite Eight game, a very easy Final Four semifinal against Villanova. And two, I also just think like the Kansas defense doesn't get talked about enough. And it's interesting, I was thinking about this. We talk about all these great defensive teams in the Big 12, TCU and Texas Tech and Texas. And I do think, in honesty, part of the reason that we focus so much on how great those defensive teams are is because of the fact that the offense really stinks, right? So, so we go out of our way to discuss how great those defenses are because the offense stinks, and so we got to credit something, and if we don't, then, uh, you know, uh, if we're not talking about Texas Tech's defense or Texas's defense, then what are we talking about? But what I don't think we talk about enough, Kansas was one of the top 25 or so defenses in all of college basketball. Effective defensive percentage, effective field goal percentage, they're 26th in the country. This was one of the best defensive teams all year, and I think it's really shown up. I thought they had a great game plan against Villanova. I thought they obviously completely shut down Miami, and I think they're going to have success. And so I could go on and on, but we are over an hour now. We got plenty of time to react to this game on Monday night or Tuesday's show, but my national championship pick on Monday is the same as my national championship pick in the preseason. I picked Kansas over Texas in the preseason, Texas ain't playing on Monday night, but I am going to pick Kansas to win the national championship. I think the X factor is the number of guys on Kansas that can beat you offensively, defensively, how good they are. They have seen everything there is to see, and I like Kansas. I'm going to take them 78 to 68. I will take Kansas to win the national championship, and boy, oh boy, I'll tell you this. They win the national championship. There's going to be some interesting conversations to have about Bill Self, about his legacy, about the fact that they got something coming from the NCAA that's neither here nor there right now. But Kansas, my preseason pick, is also my Final Four national championship pick, 78-68. to 68. I'm rocking with the Jayhawks. All right, with that said, it is officially time for me to get out of here. It is time for me to go. I want to thank you guys and girls for listening to today's Aaron Sports Podcast. If you're not subscribed, people, what are you doing? Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, Google Music, wherever you listen to podcasts, make sure that you are subscribed to the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. Make sure to rate and review the show. Go ahead, give us a quick five stars. Let us know what you like, what you don't like, all that good stuff. Make sure you're following on social media, at Aaron underscore Torres on Twitter, at Aaron Torres Pod on Instagram, 
Aaron Torres Podcast Questions at gmail.com. Aaron Torres Podcast Questions at gmail.com. That is all for today's show. I want to thank you guys and girls for listening. Shout out to Torrent Craig. Shout out to Rachel who hates my voice. I will be back on Tuesday, and we're going to have a national champion by that point, baby. Caw, caw, caw. I'll be back. Have a great Monday, party people. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.